Beloved saints, this is our God's word to us this morning. Uh, It deserves our full attention, and so let us give our attention to our God in his word. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible With God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is none who has left house, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them and they did not grasp what was said. So ends uh, the reading of God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Our gracious God, you know our fickle hearts. You know that we fear your truth as much as we desire it. That we are as likely to run from it as we are to it. You know that we can suppress your glorious truth without a second thought. And so our confidence as we draw near to your word, is that you are greater than our fears, that you are not bound by our sin, and that your word gives freedom to those in bondage. May we not just believe these things, but may we witness you do these things in our presence as we open up your word now, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. What's your one thing? Each of us has one thing that we hold on to that is harder to let go of than anything else. We would be willing to give up anything else but not that, that one thing. It's what we think makes everything possible. It's what makes life livable. It's what makes it so that we can go on. We think that without it, Life would simply be unbearable. It's that one thing that you secretly, or or maybe not so secretly, put before God in your own heart. For some, for many, it's money. 
But it could be safety, it could be security, it could be good health. It might be respect or power, it could be control. Or it might be family, it could be relationships or one specific relationship. You get the idea. It's whatever you say to God, you can have anything you want except that. That's your one thing. That's what we want to talk about today as we look at this episode uh, with the rich ruler, sometimes referred to as the rich young ruler. It's a well-known encounter, as I said earlier. It is one of the few episodes recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, And it raises all sorts of questions when we read it. People read this and they think, is Jesus telling everyone they have to sell all they have? Is Jesus opposed to private ownership? Is is he advocating for some socialistic, communistic ideal? Or is Jesus simply addressing this man's one thing? Because if he is, if he knows what our one thing is, then he's going to go after that as well. He will remove any impediment in his children that keeps them from total surrender. That's what he's after. He is after your one thing. Anything else falls short of true faith. Nothing less than absolute surrender could be a fitting response to who Jesus is and all that he has done for us. And so really what this passage is is about, when we look at it, is, is really one simple truth, and it's this. Jesus surrendered all for you, and he demands that you surrender all for him. It's that simple. <laughs> and that daunting, that terrifying. A ruler, uh, a leader with power, he walks up to Jesus, and he, and he says to him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, you know what most of us would do with this question. We might jump on it for theological accuracy. Is there anything you can do to inherit eternal life? Is this even the right question to be asking? Or we might say, what is the answer? And so on. That would be our instinct. We'd we'd just look at the question immediately and jump all over it, but not Jesus. No, he simply turns around and says, why do you call me good? And before we can even get to that, we do need to note that that the ruler also calls him teacher. Now, we've seen Jesus called this before in Luke. In fact, in chapter 10, a lawyer walks up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Calls Jesus uh, the same thing, asks the same question. This is the preferred title uh, that people who are intrigued by Jesus use that also want to kind of keep him at a safe distance. His disciples call him master. The lepers called him master. But people who want to use him, people who want to control him, or at least keep him at a safe distance, they call him teacher. They entertain entertain the idea that he might have something interesting to say, possibly something useful to say, something to teach them, but the idea that he deserves their loyalty, that they must surrender to him, is not on the table. 
But you know Jesus. He knows what's going on in their hearts. And so he locks in on that one word, good. And he presses, why do you call me good? Because no one is good but God. Are are you calling me God, he says? Because if you are, that comes with implications. Are you ready to bow to me? To acknowledge me as your creator? Are you ready to surrender all to me? It's good. Yes. It's interesting. In Mark's account, Jesus says, why do you call me good? And, and, and Mark records for us that the, the ruler calls Jesus teacher again. He just, he just admits the word good. I'm not falling into that trap again. But still today, people say they respect Jesus. They think he's a good teacher. Sound familiar? They think he's someone who might have something to teach us, something interesting to share with us. But submitting to him? Worshipping him? It's the farthest thing from their minds. And it's not new in our day and age. The ruler in our passage was just like that. Now, Jesus does eventually answer the the man's question. And while I think the man was being guarded in his question, I, I don't think we need to think the worst of him. He was a ruler. He was probably born into a prominent family, a powerful family. He was respected, and he's used to telling people what to do. He ruled. He's used to be listening. He's used to being listened to. Uh, but I think his interest in spiritual things is, is very genuine. In fact, in Mark's account, we're told that Jesus loved him, had great compassion for him. This man honestly sought to live a moral life. He was careful to do what the law commanded. But he still feels like something's missing. One more thing that he needs to do, but he just can't figure out what that that one thing is. And it's an age-old question. We heard it in our call to worship this morning. Uh, The people in, in Micah's day, Micah the prophet, were asking this very thing. And it came in this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I offer before him burnt offerings, a calf a year old, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There's this tendency to think that we can lock in our future with God with some grand gesture of devotion, and if we could just figure out what that grand gesture is, we'd be okay. And that's what the ruler is asking. What do you need? A thousand rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Do you need my firstborn? God responds in Micah with these words. He's told you. In other words, you know the answer, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? 
but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Basically, he's saying, look, there's no great secret to what God demands. Walk before him in humility, kindness, and justice. He's not saying that heaven is the reward for obedience, that you can earn your way to heaven. He's saying that God requires that we surrender and put him first. That's what it means to follow him. When you do that, your your priorities uh, change. His priorities become your priorities. Things like humility, kindness, justice, And you notice what all these have in common? They aren't self-serving. They serve God. They serve others. Jesus' answer to the ruler is essentially the same. Don't commit adultery or murder or theft, false witness. You know, obey your parents. It's nothing new. Serve your wife. Serve your neighbor. Serve your parents. Do what's good and just. Live humbly, kindly, and justly. Serve others, not yourself. But the man misses the point. He sees only the barest externals of those commands. He misses the deeper heart issues. And he claims, mission accomplished, done all these things my whole life, we're good. And then Jesus drops the bomb. One thing. There's one thing you lack. And he tells him, sell all that you have, distribute it to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven, and follow me. And we're told that the ruler, he heard these words, and he grew very sad. And the Bible tells us carefully, he grew sad because he had great wealth. See, in one sense, Jesus gave him the answer he was looking for. What's the one thing you still need? I've got an answer for you. On the other hand, it was the one thing that he didn't want to hear. Because his money was his security blanket. It was his comfort. It was his source of peace. It was was the one thing he wasn't willing to let go of which is precisely why Jesus went after it. And our temptation when we read this is to ask, is this the way into heaven? Do I have to sell all my material possessions? And for some, that's terrifying. For others, it might be a relief. Both of them? (laughs) But the answer is so much more terrifying. Because Jesus is saying that this was, money was this man's one thing. For somebody else, it might be something different. This isn't what he told Matthew, the tax collector. It's not what he will soon tell Zacchaeus in a couple passages as soon as we get to chapter 19. It's not what Peter told Ananias and Sapphira when, when they claimed to bring everything, all the proceeds. He says, it's yours to do with what you want. But for this man, His money was his one thing that he was not willing to let go of. He didn't possess his money. It possessed him, and he was its slave. And so Jesus went after that. 
And the reason for this is simple. The ruler was correct when he called Jesus good. When Jesus questioned why he called him good, he's not denying that he's good. He's not saying, why are you calling me that? I'm not good. That's not what he's saying. He's checking to see if the man understood the implications of what that meant. Because if he's good, if he's sinless, if there is no unrighteousness in him, then he is Lord. He is in charge. He's not just the good teacher. He's the good Lord, King, Master. And as such, he not only can, but he must demand total surrender, total devotion. He can't, because he's good, he can't allow this man to keep one thing back. One thing that he sees as more important than Jesus. Because he's good, he's not calling us to walk a road that he's not first willing to walk himself. Because he's good, he would never tell us to do something that he does not also do. So in verse 31, he begins to tell them again, this is not the first time in Luke's gospel we've heard this, but he begins to tell them again where they are headed and why. In verse 31, he says, We are headed to Jerusalem, not to relax, not to see friends, not to enjoy the Passover. We are headed there, so that the Son of Man might be handed over to the godless Gentiles, mocked, beaten, spit upon, and then after all these things, after torturing him viciously, in the complete absence of justice, in the complete absence of kindness, and in the complete absence of humility, he would be killed, he would be murdered. And why? All because he demanded surrender. All because he threatened the people's one thing. Their pride, their their sense of control, their assessment of what was good and right. They would not surrender. And so they put their own ways above God's ways. And in order to to rescue his own people out of that sinful reality, out of that ugly rebellion, he would have to suffer the very punishment that they deserved. And to do that, he would have to surrender everything and not hold one thing back. And so we're told that he who was rich, for our sakes, he became poor. That he who was God became a servant He would give everything for us, not hold one thing back. The reason Jesus calls us to surrender all to him is is because he surrendered all to us. His kingdom was, was purchased through absolute surrender. How could entering his kingdom expect anything less? He who was life itself surrendered his life for our sakes. But that was not the end of the story. There was one more thing. He told them 
though they struggled to truly understand and believe it, that the grave would not win. He told them not just that he would rise again, but on what day? (laughs) Such uh, specifics. Because the reward for sacrificing all would mean that he would inherit even more. Death would no longer be possible. He would be rewarded with an indestructible life, one where death was no longer possible. He was, uh, he was rewarded for holding nothing back. Because that's who Jesus is. He is good. He is the good Lord. And that helps us to understand what he says in verses 24 through 30. When the, when the rich ruler was, was unable to surrender his one thing, Jesus turned to his disciples and he says, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? First, don't miss, and don't, sorry, don't miss that, that the ruler thought God's kingdom was something he could possess. We saw that earlier. Jesus says it's something you enter. In other words, it's, it's not so much a possession as it is a calling or a way of life. But second, notice that Jesus doesn't say that it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. He, he says it's difficult. He says it's as difficult as a camel, the largest and strangest looking beast of burden, <laughs> bumps everywhere to fit through the tiny little hole at the end of a needle. Now, there have been all sorts of attempts. You maybe have heard over the years these attempts to soften that. Maybe it's this gate or this or that. That's not what Jesus wants us to do. He doesn't want you to make, oh, okay, I see how it's possible if I just do the... No, 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 it's impossible for us. He says so in the next verse. It's impossible for man, but not for God. The reason that it's so difficult is because people who have a lot of money tend to trust what their money does for them. And that's why it's so hard to give up. Because they can't imagine placing their comfort and their security someplace else. But when it comes to eternal things, what can your money do for you? Absolutely nothing. It's entirely useless. And so those who place their hope in it can only be disappointed. But everyone has one thing. It doesn't have to be money. We all have one thing that we want to hold on to as our security blanket, our our comfort, our source of peace. Whatever it is, letting go of it takes more strength than any of us have. But what is impossible for man is possible for God. Beloved, for you to let go of your one thing so that you might trust in Jesus Christ takes nothing less than an absolute supernatural work of God's grace. Because it takes you believing that Jesus is better than your one thing. 
It means making him your one thing. Learning to say to God, take anything you must. Take my money, take my health, take my family, take my life, but I'm clinging to Jesus and I am not letting go. It's scary because it surrenders whatever it is that you thought was your safety net. And so my question is, in the face of that fear, what assurance does Jesus give you that it's worth it? That's what Peter wanted to know. Peter, it's always Peter, piped up and said, we've left our homes to follow you. He's saying, Lord, you're our one thing. We've abandoned all else. I think maybe Peter will still come to realize that he was holding one thing back. But Jesus says that no one who has left all for him will be abandoned. They will see heaven. Those who sacrificed all for him will not be disappointed. They will not be forgotten. And they will be received into his kingdom with eternal life. That's his promise. He knows what he calls you to is daunting, terrifying. To place your trust in him and nothing else, to make him your one thing that you will not let go of. And he wants you to know that it's worth it, that you won't be disappointed. And to help you trust, he adds his seal to his word. In the ancient world, uh, instead of signatures on documents, people would put a piece of wax and then they'd stamp it with with an image of, of their family sign, their crest, or a sign of their office. And that wax, that stamped wax, was called a seal. And what it meant was that this document was irrevocable. That whoever stamped it, whoever put their seal on it, was bound to keep their word. And that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's God's seal on his word, binding him to keep it. God is telling you that he has bound himself to keep his promise, that that if you let go of everything to cling to him, he swears on his life, that you will not be disappointed. He does what what you can't. He makes the camel pass through the eye of the needle and he gives you entrance into the kingdom of God. That's what awaits all those who place their trust in Jesus. This is what happens for those who make Jesus their one thing. Like they ask the elders to come forward that we might receive our God's seal uh, this morning. Savior, you know our one thing. You know what we want to hold on to, to take comfort in instead of you. But you are the one thing. The only one who can bring true comfort, true peace, and true hope. And so teach us today that everything else, everything, should be on the altar. Teach us to do that trusting that those who do so will not be disappointed, will not be abandoned, and will not be forgotten. 
that they will be received into heaven, that they will enjoy eternal life in your presence. May we take comfort in your work, in your goodness, and in your promise, we pray. Amen.